Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along, welcome back. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. You found the smartest show in the history of the universe. Well done. It doesn't stop there because here we explore the universe to find out some of the mysteries lurking, hiding somewhere within. Uh, My name's Dan. Thank you for following us and thank you for downloading. This week we're learning about one of the sweetest, one of the cutest, one of the most lovely animals in the world that turns out to be pretty mean. Also, you can find out why you might see more spiders every now and then in the next month or so. And I've got your questions as always. This week they're on touchscreens, on wrinkles, and there's one about the sun as well. Uh, That's on the way. First, let's catch up with one of our favourite genius mates here on the show. It's Professor Hallux. Professor Hallux Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Hello, science sleuths. I'm Nurse Nanobot, and it's time to join Professor Hallux again in his laboratory. Well, he calls it a laboratory. It looks like a load of chimps have gone wild in a test tube factory. What a mess. There are all sorts of bubbling tanks and piles of books, test tubes and all sorts of strange apparatus. And there's a very funny smell. Pew! Brainbox Professor Hallux is attempting to build his very own human body full of all those gory but very important bits. Let's find out what he's up to today. So sorry, I haven't got time to tidy up. So much to do making my very own human body. Today, I'm concentrating on the structure that enables our bodies to stand up. Brilliant bones and a skeleton. Tremendously important stuff. Without them, you'd just be a wobbly, blobby bob. Tell them all about it, Nurse Nanobot. I've got to crack on. So many bones to make, so little time. The phenomenal facts. Bones are mostly made up of a mineral called calcium, which is hard and white, a bit like your teeth. The outside of bones is a smooth and very hard layer called cortical bone, which makes your bones strong and hard. Under this hard layer is a spongy layer called trabecular bone. Whilst this layer is still made of hard mineral, it has lots of tiny holes in it, just like a honeycomb, which makes your bones light in weight and allows for a network of blood vessels to carry blood-delivering oxygen, nutrients and water to keep your bones healthy and strong. They also carry away waste products and bits of old bone. In many bones, this is where you will also find bone marrow, a thick, squidgy substance that makes 175 billion new red blood cells every day. I bet you didn't know that your bones made blood. Clever old things, now that we've made our bones, we need to join them all together. And what have you got? Tell them, Nurse Nanobot. The skeleton, the amazing framework of your body. 
Just like planks of wood are the framework of a house, the shape of your body comes from your skeleton. The skeleton also protects your internal organs and all the squishy bits. For example, your skull, which is the hard thing you feel when you touch your head, protects the brain. Your spine is one part of your skeleton that's easy to check out. Just touch the centre of your back and you'll feel its bumps under your fingers. The spine lets you twist and bend and it holds your body upright. It also protects the spinal cord, a large bundle of nerves that sends information between your brain and the rest of your body. Ribs are long, thin bones that surround your chest. You have 24 ribs in 12 pairs, although some people have 13 pairs and others only 11. Together with your sternum, the flat T-shaped bone in the middle of your chest, they form your rib cage. If you shut your eyes and place your fingers on your chest, you can count them. Spot on as always, nurse. Now, as we've got quite a few bones in our bodies, quite often they will meet. This is where we've got joints. No, 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 not like a joint of meat that you might have for a Sunday lunch. I mean joints which allow your body to bend and move. Some of your joints will only bend in one direction. For example, your knee joint can only swing forwards and backwards like a hinge. Others can move in lots of different directions, such as your hip joint, which can move in a big circle. Bones at each joint are connected by tough straps called ligaments, and the end of each bone is covered with a smooth, shiny cartilage which allows bones to slide against each other. Just imagine how hard it would be to move if you didn't have joints. Try moving around without bending your knees or elbows. Careful now. Now try and sit down. Can you get back up again? See how hard it is to move around? <laughs> I'm just adding the joints in now. Horrible old anatomy fact. <laughs> Trepanning is a word that means drilling holes in your skull, or someone else's. Since the Neolithic period 12,000 years ago, people have been doing this to try to make themselves feel better. We know this because skulls have been found with perfectly circular or square holes cut in them. The funny thing is that surgeons today do similar activity to get to parts of the brain. But modern surgeons call this a craniotomy. And did you know, nurse, that once the baby's born with over 300 bones as you grow, some of these fuse. So by the time you're an adult, you'll have on average 206 bones in your body. And more than half of your bones are found in your hands and feet. There are 27 bones in each hand and 26 bones in each foot. And did you know that we all have a tailbone? You can feel a knobbly bone at the bottom of your back. This is called the coccyx. <laughs> Carry on, nurse. I, I'm just wrenching the arms on now. Disgusting detail. It is pretty easy to tell if you've broken a big bone. Your arm or leg might look very wonky indeed. And if you're very unlucky, some of the bone might be sticking out through your skin. Don't worry, though, if it does happen. It's very easy to mend. Oh, yes. But always go to the hospital. Where with an X-ray machine, a bit like X-ray specs, a doctor can look at broken bones in more detail. The first step of treating a broken bone is to put the pieces back in the right place. Once all the bits are in the right place, the bone is then held in place while it heals with a cast made of plaster, plastic or fibreglass. Your body then takes over with all the blood vessels, bringing all the good stuff to mend the bone. And bones are very good at mending. And you thought they were just boring old sticks! 
now my skeleton is pretty much ready to go. So let's zap it together and let's let the lightning loose. Brilliant. It's worked. My body has a wonderful skeleton. <laughs> Isn't he a handsome chap now? Although he needs feeding up, he's a bit on the bony side. Next time, I'll be attaching some muscles to these bones so he can get moving. And now it's time for me to get moving too. Hope you can join me in Nurse Nanabot then. Bye for now. You can find out more about the professor and his body at the Fun Kids website, funkidslive.com. Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Right, it's question time then. This is where you send in your science questions, your little problems that are fluttering around your brain. Maybe you've been told something because you've gone back to school and you're thinking, hang on. Hang on. There is no way that can be true. Send it over to me. As a review on Apple Podcasts, I will see it and I will do all the science digging for you. Uh, first up is from Kitty in Twickenham who says, How do touch screens work? Now, there's a few different type of touch screens, but let's look at the ones that's normally on your phone. Uh, there are two layers in your phone screen. There's a plastic one on top and there's a glass one underneath. Now, there's also some electricity running underneath that, a current that goes up and down, it goes side to side, it's all over the place, it's on all the time, and it's all important. You see, when you touch the screen, you push those two layers together, the plastic and the glass. That then touches the electrical current, and it changes the way that it moves. It alters the circuit, and it knows that. The computer that's inside can figure out from how the electricity has been moved, how it's been changed, exactly where your finger is. It can pinpoint it with precise coordinates and it knows what you want to do. There you go, Kitty. Uh, next up is Marley, who's in Mozambique. Uh, Marley, you've been on before. Nice work managing to leave us more than one review with more than one question. Uh, Marley says, why do we have wrinkles? I mean, I don't have wrinkles. I have perfect skin. Thank you very much. Not a spot, not a blemish in sight. But look at your mum, look at your dad, look at your grandparents right now. Ugh, loads of wrinkles there, right? It's because your skin uses two things to keep you looking young and stretched. Uh, elastin, which are fibres, and collagen, which is a protein which helps get moisture to the skin to keep it hydrated. Now, when you get old or you've been exposed to too much sunlight, too many UV rays, maybe when you've taken in stuff that's not good for you, stuff that's toxic, you lose the ability to make that collagen and that elastin, which means you can't get enough moisture to the skin. It starts to get heavy and it starts to sag. That's why you get wrinkles, Marley. Uh, and lastly... Uh, this week, uh, we're headed to Ireland to say hello to Leo, who says, Why does the sun move with us? Hmm. I've been thinking about this, Leo. <clears throat> I'm not quite sure what you mean, I'll be honest. Like, is it, do you mean, is it moving with us away from the middle point of the universe? Kind of the Big Bang moving that way? I'm not sure. I think... <laughs> Look, the sun is always in the same place in our solar system because the Earth goes around it at the same speed, more or less, every year. 
and we spin on our axis at more or less the same speed every day. We do one full rotation in 24 hours. So we see the sun rise or fall in exactly the same way. The sun isn't moving with us. We are moving around it. It's in the middle. That's why it's always pretty much in the same space in the sky. Thank you very much for that question. I hope I figured it out, Leo. Uh, If you've got something for me to answer next week, you can leave it as a review over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now about another podcast that I think you'll love. Now, I'm not usually in the business to talk about other podcasts because why would I? This is the greatest podcast ever. But coming very close is Everything Under the Sun. You, you've probably heard of it. Molly Oldfield does it. She answers loads of incredible questions about everything under the sun. And she's got a brand new book out. Molly, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So just in case uh, we haven't heard about the podcast, just just run us through where you got the idea from. Well, I had the idea just after I'd been working on the television programme QI, which um, children's parents might watch. It was hosted by Stephen Fry, and it's all about quite interesting things. And I was the original elf, um, which is the name given to the people who write the questions and lots of fun answers for the host, Stephen Fry. Um, And then I had children of my own, and I wanted to do something QI-like for children. And so I was um, thinking of an idea when I got a message from a mother friend of mine saying, I've just taken my daughter to the Natural History Museum to see Hope, the big blue well that hangs from the roof of the museum. Now, I've written a book called Wonders of the World's Museums, and Hope, the blue well is one of the things I wrote about in that book. So this little girl, B had read the book and she'd seen the blue well and she had a question for me, which was, can blue wells talk to killer whales? And I thought that was such a wonderful question that I wanted to find out the answer. So I recorded an answer with the help from the Natural History Museum. And that was the beginning of the podcast. Now, without spoiling your first episode, can killer whales talk to uh, blue whales? In fact, they cannot because killer whales are otherwise known as orcas, are actually members of the dolphin family. Yeah, exactly. So they they speak in kind of whistles, clicks and calls. And uh, blue whales, of course, sing long, deep whale songs that can travel for thousands of miles through the oceans. So they're very, very different languages. But what I thought was really interesting is that although they couldn't talk to one another, I did find out that blue whales in different parts of the ocean speak different languages, as do orcas. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? That a blue whale who lives around Iceland wouldn't be able to understand a blue whale who lived on the other side of the of the world. I thought that was kind of cool. So the podcast is stuffed full of those kind of questions and you pretty much dedicate an episode to, you know, a question or a theme and you've got a brand new book out, which is packed full of loads of questions. Just just tell us about the book. Tell us about the type of questions that might be in there and how you kind of did a lot of research for it. So the book is made up of lots and lots of questions that children have sent into the podcast. Um, So I picked 365 or actually 366 questions that children had sent me and answered them all with the help of experts. And so there's one question and answer for every day of the year. So the idea is that it's a year of curiosity and you can read one a day if you like with your bedtime story, or you can just pick in and dip in at random and read whatever you like. Now, I get sent 
uh, like you, I get sent a lot of questions from kids all about science, all about stuff like that. So I know, I know, I know a good question when I see one. Uh, I've, I've had a flick through the book and I've just picked a few and I thought I'd pick your brains to try and see how well you can answer. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I really love this because it's something that I don't know, like my dad keeps telling me about. Maybe his dad told him and I'm not sure if I believe it. Does eating cheese give you bad dreams? Well, this is a really interesting story because there is a British cheese board and they decided to find out whether or not cheese really does give you bad dreams because obviously that's something that everybody thinks. So they asked 200 people to eat cheese and then go to bed. And around 75% of them said they did not have bad dreams. But interestingly, different types of cheese did seem to give them different types of dreams. They found that Stilton eaters had strange dreams Cheddar eaters dreamed about famous people and Lancashire cheese eaters dreamed about work. And very bizarrely, Cheshire cheese eaters didn't seem to have any dreams that they could remember. I don't know how I feel about these different cheeses <laughs> making very precise dreams. I always thought it was just because you were eating anything before bed. It, it's just your body's doing a lot of digestion and you associate, people, adults associate with eating cheese before they go to bed, like a little midnight snack. And it's just a body coming to terms with that really well you should give it a go have some cheddar cheese on toast tonight before you go to sleep and see if you dream about famous people well i'm not having the stilton one that was terrifying these these bizarre <laughs> dreams uh what else yeah. oh i enjoyed this one this made me laugh what is the strangest looking animal well that award goes to a creature called the blobfish which you've got to google and look at because it really looks like such an ugly pink like flabby little creature and it's often called the ugliest animal in the world but uh, interestingly that's actually quite unfair because up on dry land a blobfish does look like a really ugly big pink tadpole or blob of jelly but blobfish live but blobfish live deep down in the ocean and there where they live actually they're quite normal looking their jelly-like body gets squashed into a normal fish shape by the pressure of the water and you wouldn't really think a blobfish looked that weird if you saw it in its natural habitat. But on land, it's very weird. That's very mean of us, isn't it? Taking yeah. this fish from deep down where it's perfectly pretty, fits right in, and then judging it for being ugly on our standards. I don't it's like harsh. that. Feel. Very, very mean. Um, right, last one. And this was just like a, like a funny title. Uh, <laughs> where do bricks come from? Where do bricks come from, Molly? Uh, well, um, where do bricks come from? Well, there's lots of different possibilities, but we think that bricks were invented around 7000 BCE. The oldest known bricks have been found in Turkey um, around the city of Jericho, and they were made of mud that had been dried and hardened in the sun. But other civilizations had different ways of making bricks. So in ancient Egypt, they made bricks out of clay mixed with straw. And the ancient Romans made bricks out of red or white clay and then hardened them in portable ovens. And interestingly, bricks used to be made by hand until the 1850s. So it took ages and it was really slow to make a house out of bricks. But when the first brick making machines were invented, then you can make thousands of bricks a day. And that's why lots of our houses are made out of bricks. 
We've covered there just a few. I mean, cheese, bricks and strange blobfish. Uh, but in the book, though, in Everything Under the Sun, it's the book. There's the podcast as well. Um, there's loads more questions, even more weird, even more brilliant than that. Um, it's by Molly Oldfield. Molly, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Now, for this week's Dangerous Dan, we've got a strange one. One of the sweetest-looking animals in the world that turns out to be pretty poisonous. Have you ever seen a shrew? They're small mammals. They look a little bit like a mole. The really small ones get confused uh, as mice. And you find them all around the world. There's only a few countries which don't have shrews. They've got a long nose, tiny eyes. They scurry through fields in mud around boulders and rocks. And they've got a pretty disarming venom. They use this venom through uh, thick teeth, which are hollow, with a thin groove in the middle, in the side, which they send the poison through. A quick snap, a quick bite, and they can inject. The thing is, here's what's mind-blowing and mind-bending. The shrews only really eat small creatures, like insects and earthworms. You'd think they don't really need that venom to win that fight, but it's actually used as a preservative uh, to keep things fresh. You know when you want to eat food later, you probably stick it in the fridge? Uh, Well, a shrew poisons its prey to paralyse it so that it can't move, so it can't go anywhere. Then it goes off, then it finds more food, brings it back, and they've got themselves a massive paralysed feast of of prey. Uh, It's really important for them. Shrews are ravenously hungry. They eat their own body weight in food every day, so they need a huge amount to tuck into. That's why this science is really smart. This venom, this poison, is the way that they get it every night, a massive feast for dinner. We're chatting to another gadget genius right now. This is Techno Mum. Techno Mum, engineering explorers. I love coming up with ideas for cool new gadgets. Not surprising, really, when my mum's an engineer. I'm pretty sure she's going to be mega impressed with my latest creation. Jet propelled roller skates. Just a quick burst of turbo here, and the momentum will carry you along the wheels before lift off. That certainly make it quicker to get to school. Not a bad thing when I have to tell you a hundred times to hurry up. You'd be chasing me up the road in these. <laughs> That'll make a nice change. You know, there are engineers out there working on other cool new ways to get things up in the air. What kind of engineers? Aeronautical and aerospace engineers. Aeronautical and aerospace engineers? I guess what they have in common is the air. That's right. Both involve working with aircraft, things which you make that can fly. Like an enormous jumbo jet or even a rocket. Cool. It could be, but they also create smaller things, like satellites the size of this table or drones that fit in one hand. There's lots of exciting new technology, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. So, what's the difference between aeronautical and aerospace engineers? Aeronautical engineers work with aircraft that operate inside the Earth's atmosphere, things like planes, helicopters and drones. Aerospace engineers work on things which operate... Let me guess, in space? You're very bright, aren't you? I wonder where you get it from. I'd love a job working on planes, or better still, rockets. Well, there's no reason why you can't. Aerospace engineers are busier than ever. Check out this video. 
A lot of new aerospace jobs have been created because of our need for satellites. We're using more and more of them all the time. Not just for watching the telly, but to observe the Earth and the atmosphere. Over the next 10 years, it's expected that there will be over 3,000 launch. That's a lot of launches. And they don't just magically appear up in orbit. Something has to carry them into orbit. This aerospace engineer is working on a space plane, which will fly both to outside of our atmosphere. It could carry satellites into orbit, or take supplies to the International Space Station, which is a satellite itself. So, a space plane is kind of like a delivery van? A very fast, very high-tech van, yes. This prototype plane has taken some test flights, and the engineer is looking at the result from a computer. It looks like part of the fuselage has been damaged. She's investigating why that might be. Because things like space planes are extremely complex. Engineers often work in teams, and being good at detail is critical because safety is so important. Now, while some engineers will be coming up with creative solutions... Like my jet-propelled roller skates? Perhaps. While other engineers will be more focused on checking that the plans have been correctly followed, helping to figure out why things might not have gone as planned. Cool job. There are loads of cool jobs for engineers. Almost as many jobs as there are inventions. Hmm. Speaking of inventions, I think I can feel another idea coming on. Levitating trousers. Engineering Explorers. Created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology to celebrate the year of engineering. Find out more at funkinslide.com slash Let's get this week's science in the news. Smoke alarms went off in the International Space Station a few days ago, worrying. The crew reported smoke and the smell of burning plastic. It happened in the Russian-built living quarters of the station, where quite a lot of it is old. We spoke about this recently. They want to do it up again. They want to fix a lot of stuff. Uh, It happened during the recharging of the batteries, but now they say everything is back to normal. Also, you might remember this. A meteorite that fell in the UK town of Winchcombe back in February is under investigation. Uh, It hit the driveway of a house, much like yours and mine, uh, and that driveway is now being pulled up. Scientists want to investigate the bit of rubble where the meteorite hit to see if it holds clues about the universe. And right now here in the UK, you might not like this, but it's spider season. If you see more spiders around, it's because males are looking for mates, they're wandering about, and also, it's quite cold outside. Spiders are used to hot places, and it's warmer in your house, so that's where they go. But most of the time, their jaws are way too small to even bite you, so you will be perfectly safe. Fingers crossed. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got something science-y for the show, a question you'd like me to answer, you can leave it as a review over on Apple Podcasts. I'm always looking there. There's a little box, that's where you put your question. Give us five stars so I can see it, and your name as well, so I know who to say hello to. While you're there, you can hear so many brilliant podcasts that we do. They're also on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids is a children's radio station here in the UK. You can listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app, and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!